Please take your Bibles, turn with me to John 14. We've got about five Sundays left in the Foundational Framework series, and we're done. It's a series we've been doing since day one of me being here. It's funny because Dave talked about it takes a year, a year and a half to get through. It's taken us a little bit longer. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Dave, do you know how long they normally teach on a given teaching session? No? Okay. Would, would you say that they go long when they teach? I am. I am. Brother, I need as much help as I can get right now. Now, don't tell the person next to you, but I am going to preach long today. John chapter 14. This finds us in the middle of a situation where Jesus is preparing his disciples, the 11, for what they're getting ready to see. The person that they admire most, the person that they laid down fishing nets, stepped away from tax collector tables, gave up wealth and time with their families, and they stuck with this man who is claimed to be the Son of God, and they're traveling with him all over the land of Palestine. And they've seen some incredible things. And they probably felt cool hanging out with Jesus. They would even spend some time arguing about which one of them was going to be the greatest because they were spending time with him. And in doing so, he is getting ready to be taken away from them. I know it sounds maybe kind of juvenile, but I almost picture what would happen to Linus if somebody suddenly stole his blanket from him. And it is a mental breakdown. They are going to be pushed to the heights of emotions like they've never understood. They're going to see some things transpire right in front of their eyes. And they're going to sit here and say, this isn't just, this isn't fair. What has Jesus done wrong? And the answer is nothing. But it doesn't change the fact that the shackles are going to go on him, that the mob is going to take him, that the disciples are going to run for their lives and not worry about looking back, that they're going to abandon the one that they love. And so Jesus is preparing them, not just truth for this critical moment, but he is preparing them with a lifestyle, an ideology, a conviction that is to carry them the rest of their lives and by way us. Now because of what we're going to deal with today and because of the way we're going to deal with it, I think it's important for us to read through this entire section. Then we will go back and we'll work through it verse by verse. Chapter 15 of John. Did I not tell you the chapter? Well, we're going to do 14, but let's start reading in 15. Got to get a little context here, right? 15.1 I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch 
and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. There are two popular ways to take this passage. Because of such things as we see in verse 2, as every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And then immediately you jump down to verse 6 and you see, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. And that viewpoint wants to say, well, if you're claiming to be a believer in Christ and there's no fruit in your life, you're not really saved. And since there's burning in this passage, obviously it means hell. So that's where you go if you don't know Jesus. Guilt is a poor motivator. And one thing that we have to remember that is paramount, especially in this day and age, the more that I'm reading stuff that comes out, is if you are acceptable to God on any grounds, it is not a grounds that you provide. It is a grounds that is provided for you by Jesus Christ, His perfect work on the cross. If God demanded anything good in you and me in order to be saved, we would have part in our salvation. But in spite of us, He made the blood of Jesus available. Whoever believes will not perish, but have what? Everlasting life, eternal life. It is forever life, never to be taken away. So that needs to be a settled issue. Because there are some people that say, well, you're saved by faith alone, but the faith that truly saves is never alone. That is called an incongruent statement. Faith is alone. Faith is all that God asks in response to Jesus. That's it. So if we are told that we have to have works on the back end of our salvation, well, now that you're saved, you should be doing this. And that's how we know that you're really saved. I'm just curious. Any of you had a bad day? No one? Just me? Okay. Florence is the only person. Okay, Jerry, good. Okay, yes. We've had bad days, have we not? But was our bad day a need to question our salvation? No. Why? Because my salvation isn't based on what kind of day I'm having. It's, it's based on what kind of Savior I've believed in. It is Jesus Christ and His work, not mine, that needs the focus and attention. Now, Jesus here is speaking to men who are already saved people. They're the 11. Judas is already set out to betray him and has left the fold. And because that happens, it opens up the scope for Jesus to be able to speak more freely and emphatically to them. And I want to see something really interesting. Go to chapter 14, verse 31, leading into this. Sometimes when we're reading the Bible, the chapter number can really mess up our minds and cause us to make a break. And I don't want to do that. Look what he says here. I know we're picking up in half a sentence, but I want you to see what he says. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, 
I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Does everybody see what Jesus said? Jesus is saying it this way. I obey God. And I obey God because my life preaches to the world. And when my life preaches to the world, if it preaches anything, it preaches one thing. I love God. That's it. Our world has got a lot of crazy things they say that equals love today. But what we find Jesus is teaching on love is, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And Jesus said, I'm going to show you that it's true because I'm going to model it in my life. I'm going to show you what it is to walk in fellowship with the Father. No one could doubt Jesus' love for the Father. And with that idea, he wants to carry them into the next section. Now, we've been looking at what Jesus had to teach about the Holy Spirit. And some of the greatest marks of his teaching are found in chapters 13, 14, 15, 16 in this section here. But we're going to walk into this situation because he wants to give you an illustration of what this looks like. And so look what he does. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Now you read about this in some commentaries or you pull some books and why is Jesus the true vine? Are there false vines out there? A lot of people want to liken it to the prophets. A lot of time the prophets associated Israel with the vine that God tended to. But yet because they failed, they ended up being a fruitless vine. And so Jesus is coming about and he's obeying in ways that Israel never did. I'll be honest with you, I don't see any justification for that in this text here. But if you were listening when we read through it, you notice that some things are brought up. Bear fruit. Abide. Love. And joy. Everybody remember those themes when we read through there? Yes? Who's asleep this morning? Raise your hand. Just Laverne. Good deal. When we talk about what it is to abide, we talk about what it is to remain. To stick with it. To stay put. To not go anywhere. There's getting ready to be a situation happen where the disciples are going to cease to abide with him. And he is going to, they are going to flee. In fact, one of the marks that we see early on when we talk about the Holy Spirit is that so far the Holy Spirit has been abiding with you, but there will come a time when he will be in you. Does everybody remember that? Yes? Come on, work with me, guys. I've been excited about teaching this for two years. Don't let me down today. I've been chomping at the bit. By the way, if you notice in your handout, you have 18 and a half pages of notes. Yes, that's how excited I was to talk about this today. And I think the first seven pages deal with just the first two verses. So, and we're going to refer to them in a minute because of what you need to see. Abiding and remaining. Would you agree that there are many competing influences in our lives today? Yes? Do you think that's true for the disciples in Jesus' time? Jesus is saying, abide with me. I'm the true vine. Other things you could abide with, other things you could want to be part of, other things you could claim your association with. But instead, seek fellowship with me is infinitely greater. Regardless of what some people think, the Christian church was not set up on earth to produce Republicans. It wasn't. I'm so tired of that ideology, it's ridiculous. As if one side's party doesn't stink more than the other. 
Let's not be fools to think that that makes us good people. The only thing good about us is Jesus. The sooner that we come to terms with that, the more humble we'll be in our lives. The more we can lay pride down and let Him be all that He needs to be to make us useful for God's glory. Notice not only does He call Himself the true vine, but He calls His Father the vine dresser. Anybody got the word husbandman in there? Anybody got that? What translation do you have? The King Jimmy. That's great. The husbandman is the idea of vine dresser. This Greek word means one that works the soil or the ground. It's commonly used for a farmer. But in this situation, it's used for a vine dresser, someone who tends to the vine. And this is important that you understand this because the cultural implications of what it is to work with a grapevine are drastically different than a farmer that would work in a field. Yes, they're both in the, in the midst of soil. They're both trying to get produce out. But the way you go about it is a completely different perspective. Notice he says here, verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Stop. Every branch where? In me. What are the three most popular things in real estate? Location, location, location. Where are these branches? In Christ. Now stop and just ask yourself this basic question. Saved or unsaved? Saved people. So let's already start with Jesus' words and not let's, take, let's, let's not take away or add to him at all, okay? Every branch in me that does not bear fruit. In other words, there is nothing productive coming out of your life. There is nothing being born that is of God. Branches in him, but there's nothing coming out. He does what? He takes away. He takes away. Everybody got your notes? I want to show you something. Turn over, see, front page, two, three, four, five, fifth page in. And if you notice, you got a number one in the middle of the page. I actually copied a large section out of a Greek lexicon for you to look at. Now, I removed all the Greek out of it just so it didn't distract your mind because I want you to see the definitions as we run down through here. And look what it says. Number one, to raise up. Everybody see that? To raise from the ground, to take up. Look at B, to raise upwards, elevate, lift up. How about C, turn it over, to draw up. Number two, to take upon oneself and carry what has been raised, to bear something, the idea is. Number three, to bear away what has been raised, to carry off. To move, it should be to move there, from its place. To take off or away. C, to remove, to carry off, to carry away with one. E, to appropriate what is taken. F, to make, to take away from another what is his or what is committed to him. To take by force. G, to take and apply to any use. H, to take from among the living, either by natural death. I, over on the next page, of things to take out of the way and to destroy did everybody notice that the I definition is the first one that gives you the negative connotation of destroying something? Everybody see that? Yes? Everybody see it? Yes. Stick with me today, church. Yes. I only got two pins, but I'll throw them. What is the first definition? What was the number one definition? To raise up. Mitch, let's show this quote. 
guy named James Boyce wrote some commentaries. Here's what he said when we look at this. By the way, that's I'm going to look like that one day. <laughs> Get ready. The hairline's already coming. So, <laughs> Undoubtedly, their translation has been made to conform to what they know or believe is coming in verse 6. The idea of being gathered up and dries and thrown away and burned. But the translation is not the best or even the most general meaning of the Greek word iro, that we have takes away in all of our major translations, which lies behind it. The word iro first and foremost means to lift up. Now why in the world does that make sense better than takes away? Well, takes away gives you the connotation of, well, they were never really saved, and therefore they didn't belong there. And so we had to take them away, and according to verse 6, this is just a play out of what happens, and so we throw them in the lake of fire, and yeah, those people down with them. And everybody gets very self-righteous about their own personal fruit and how they can look down on everybody. That has nothing to do with anything we see here as far as how a vine dresser works with a vine. A vine dresser, someone who is involved in what's called viticulture, carefully works meticulously with each and every branch and vine. He knows those that produce certain types. He understands that they almost have characteristics of themselves. He does not think of them as a whole, like a field of that. He actually has to deal with them on an individual basis as they're hanging from the trellis. And sadly, what happens that renders a vine not productive in bringing forth fruit is that the vine for a time or the branch has come off of the trellis and is resting upon the ground. Now, when a branch comes off the trellis and is now touching the ground, this flow of nourishment that was going on as they were hanging up high gets severely diminished. And in doing so, this branch has got to do something to stay alive. It needs nourishment in some way. And so this branch actually develops little sprigs and pushes down into the earth trying to seek moisture. It's inferior. It's by far... I don't know. It's not what it should be for this vine. But because the vine is on the ground and in desperate times and needs to survive somehow, the vine will do whatever it can to get down into that soil, even if it's an inferior source of nourishment, to still receive this nourishment. So now the father's got to get involved. And why is that? Because the branch is not getting the best possible nourishment that it's capable of receiving. The branch is settling for inferior things instead of the best. But the way that he does it is interesting. How many of you ever dealt with vines in your yard? Yeah, if there's anything that is on the threshold of hell, it's that, isn't it? Let's just be honest. Right outside the gates. I remember I was working on a vine that had gone everywhere in front of our house one day. I traced that thing all the way to the backyard. I'm going around the house. Thinking, good grief, I've never seen anything like this. It's like John 15. And I'm like, wow. But what we do when we deal with vines, because they're a nuisance, is we pick them right up off the ground and we, and we throw them away, right? Sounds like the logical thing, we deal with them. But if you want to have amazing grapes, if you want to have glorious fruit, if you want to have, and I've never used this word before, but I'll go ahead and say it, succulent wine. Not wine, succulent. 
then you want to develop this vine and care for it and tend to it as best as possible. But you got a vine on the ground getting inferior nourishment and no production. What do you do? Here's what the vine dresser does. He takes this vine resting on the ground with the sprigs in the ground and he lifts it up just a little bit. He takes a little rock slides it underneath that vine. Not enough to pull the sprigs and immediately uproot them out, but enough to just get a little bit of stress so that they start to realize we're now breaking away from these inferior things. And he waits. Then he comes in and takes another section and puts in a rock in the section before he puts in maybe a little bit bigger rock. And he slowly begins to separate the vine from its inferior source of nourishment. And it could take weeks to do this but thank the lord the vine dresser's patient enough to see that process through and then finally when this vine this branch has been separated from its inferior source of nourishment he is able again to hang it in a position to where it has the best possible chance to produce the greatest fruit you've ever had so when we talk about Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away? No. Probably lose a lot of vines that way. What does he do? He takes the time to lift up, to put them in a place of production. In other words, he's not easily defeated. He wants to get in there and carefully, but cautiously, but lovingly fashion the branch off the ground and put it into a place of productivity. We could stop right there, and that would be a good application, wouldn't it? But we're not done. And neither is Jesus. Look what he says. Every branch that bears fruit that is productive, he prunes. We get our English word catharsis from this. It's the idea of a cleansing that takes place. It's a cleaning that he goes through. It's a cleaning process. And I've actually been really surprised how many commentaries I were reading about this, and they said, well, this cleaning is discipline. I said, wait a second. They're producing the fruit that they ought to produce. They're doing exactly what the vine dresser wants. They're in the vine, and they're bringing forth great fruit. Why would God come in and discipline them? There's no reason for it. So the only other option that Scripture gives us of how the vine dresser goes about pruning or cleansing a branch so that it will produce even more fruit. I mean, notice it says that it may bear more fruit is the idea of trials in our lives, testings. Every test that is given in our lives is a question of whether or not you will believe God's word. Do you believe what God has said or do you not believe it? In fact, the the great and and wondrous, uh, uh, what do we want to say? Almost um, troubling verse from James. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you experience trials of various kinds. And that's when you slam your Bible shut and you say, no, I will not rejoice. This is terrible. But James tells you why. Testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And then let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing let god do his work of cleaning you you're already fruitful 
And because of your ongoing fellowship experience with him, you have a lot to draw from because you've been cultivating it all this time. This hard time isn't meant to sway you. It's meant to grow you. It's meant to cause greater dependency for greater fruit. I mean, that's really what fellowship is. Fellowship with the Lord, cultivating that is stepping away from the self-life and leaning into the Lord's life in full dependency. That's the idea. So he brings about trials in order to clean us. Maybe you're going through that right now. Maybe you're a branch on the ground and you don't feel very productive. Guess what? The Lord is working with you. And when he works with you, he wants you to respond. He's given you everything that you need to respond. He has given you everything you need to be successful in living a life that is worth something in the scope of eternity. Maybe you're somebody who is already walking with the Lord in the light of his word, right? You know, what a joy he sheds on our way. What he says we will do, where he sends we will go. Notice that's dependency. I'm not worried about carving my own path. I'm not worried about making my own choices. I'm just worried about what Jesus wants for my life. That's it. I'm dependent. And if that is the case, you will bear more fruit. Now look at verse 3. Verse 3 tells us, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Now if you want reference to this, you can write in there to the side, John 13, verses 10 and 11. When he was washing their feet, he let them know they were already completely clean because of the word that he had spoken to them. Now why is that? Because faith comes through hearing and hearing the word of God. Someone hears God's word, they respond to it in belief, and they are saved. That's how that happens. They're already justified people. So look at verse 4 here. Abide in me. This Greek word is meno. Remain. Stay steadfast. Abide in me. And I in you. In other words, stick with me. Stay with me. Don't leave. Don't go anywhere. Don't choose something inferior. Don't think that your nourishment is going to be more satisfying Grass is always greener on the other side, isn't it? Yep, guess what? There's cow patties there too. You may be stepping in on your side. Guess what? You're going to step in those too. That is a myth that we tell ourselves that some place is better than being with Jesus. It's how we justify our sin. Notice it says, abide in me and I in you. How does Jesus abide in us? You might know. How does he? Well, Holy Spirit is the main evidence of it, right? What else do we know? His Word. Man, that's powerful. In fact, that's contextually accurate. His Word is how he abides in us. Watch what he says. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Independence in any situation, is a sin. Because nothing can come from it. Now, ladies, imagine that your husband has an apple tree in the backyard. He loves apples so much. One day you come home and you notice that there is a pot with soil sitting next to his chair in the living room. There is a branch that is hanging out of the top of it. And you say, honey... What is this? 
He says, it's our apple tree. I love them so much. But I got tired to go out and get them. So I wanted them closer. So I took the axe out. And I lobbed off a limb. And I stuck it right here in this soil. And when it's seasoned, we're going to get apples. Now, if Jesus doesn't allow for divorce and those issues, he probably should. Because you would sit here and go, that's just dumb. Yes? You would be thinking there's probably a different path in life at this moment. Because this man has lost all of his marbles all over the counter. It makes no sense, does it? Does it? So why in the world would we ever think that God would be doing God things through us when our association or affiliation with Him is the bare minimum that it could possibly be? Why would we ever think that anything bright and flourishing and worth having would be possible when our Bibles are covered with dust, when our prayer life is non-existent, when our seeking His counsel about major decisions in our lives, regardless of what area it is, has all been negligent because we just can't have enough toys in the garage, because we just can't have enough antiques around the house, because we can't stop building the empire of self, and all of a sudden we expect God to swoop in and be doing things that would be more characteristic of revival when we deem him lucky that we even give him the time of day. Even though he established that relationship through Jesus Christ, that is not fellowship. That is not somebody that you are friends with. That's somebody that you tolerate and then use to get what you want out of it. I'm thankful that he's gracious and looks past my stupidity. I'm thankful that he blesses beyond my negligence of my fellowship with him. But Jesus is clear. If you separate a branch from the vine, don't stand there with your hands out looking for grapes. They're not coming. They're not going to. Because if you have no source of true nourishment, you will have nothing. In fact, look where he goes with this. Verse 5. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides remains in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. In other words, there will be production from intimacy with the Lord. There will be an overflow that comes from your time invested with him. There will be something for everyone to look at to know that you have walked with Christ. I think it's amazing in Acts that Peter and John didn't need to hand out business cards and give their credentials and point to the degrees on the wall. No, those guys knew they had been with Jesus. They didn't have to say anything. They knew. The Scripture records they knew they had been with Jesus. This isn't any different. So notice, you'll bear much fruit. But look what it says after that. For, here's the explanation, apart from me you can do nothing. Anybody want to guess what similarity this is with nothing? It's the last time I yelled at you guys. Never. Never. Nothing. This Greek phrase here is oudes. U is a negative adverb. Oudes means no. 
So not only do you have a word meaning no, you've got a negation of it strapped on top. Is Jesus clear? Nothing. Nothing. Stop for a second, guys. I'm a Christian. I've been going to church all my life. I got a Bible or nine sitting around the house. We watch Charles Stanley all the time. Heck, we even get a little risky and get into Joyce Meyer. That's probably your problem. We live a devoted life. I show up on Tuesday. I show up on Monday. I show up on Thursday. I'm here at church all the time. And we want to give our credentials about why our relationship with Jesus is vibrant. Let me ask you a question. When's the last hard decision you had to make to sacrifice something so that he's glorified? This is a type he's talking about. Why is that? Because of the word nothing. Even what we think we have, we don't. You know how we know that's true? Because none of it's ours to begin with. Let's stop thinking in this notion that the things that we own that have been blessed with us are ours. They're not. They're not ours. Jesus said, take care of this for a little bit. It's mine. That's the idea. And somehow we want to live apart from him. And we're expecting of great things that he will do. It's not that he doesn't want to. It's not that he doesn't have the ability to. It's not that he's not overflowing with grace to want to. He provided his son. Which more, what more did he need to give to you and me? Was there something more than Jesus that we needed? No, in fact, the big realization of this whole thing that he's telling this, I am the vine, you are the branches. The grand goal is that Jesus is all that we needed. He's all we've ever needed. And anything else that we think that we're participating in that is somehow going to trump this or supplement what is lacking in Jesus exposes our unbelief that we have in our thinking of Jesus and whatever we think that we've built up or have to show for those choices is actually equated to nothing. 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 Let me be a little bit more clear. Apart from Jesus, we have nothing nothing i don't care what you drive i don't care where you live apart from christ you have nothing nothing how do we know this guys everything's going to burn we're guaranteed at second peter three everything will burn everything we are working towards in life to get some sort of accomplishment and verification and acceptance to be solidified in some way, it's nothing. Nothing. All of it will burn. And the only thing that's going to matter when it's all over and done with is, what did it look like between you and my son? That's it. You guys want to know what question's coming on the test? There it is. I'm going to tell you what else God's done. He's already given you the answer to the test. Everybody see this? Look at verse 6. Here's what kills everybody. If anyone does not abide, you've chosen not to remain in Christ. Not that you've lost your salvation. Not that you forfeited it in some way. Not that you out God's grace and therefore got kicked out of the family of God. You became unregenerate after you'd been regenerated. That's not what we're talking about. Nor is it a situation where you weren't really, truly, genuinely a believer in Christ. If you believed in Christ, you're saved. But if you're choosing not to walk in fellowship with Him, if you're in the nothing crowd of Christianity, notice what he says here. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away. He's cast out. 
is the idea. As a branch, it dries up. Now remember the imagery here, okay? Bundling up sticks to burn in the fall, branches that have fallen, something like that. Notice what it says, they're gathered up. They cast them into the fire and they are burned. In other words, for the refusal to remain, to abide in Christ, and because we've been given everything we possibly need to live a worthy life in the scope of eternity, we've rejected that and we've lived for self. Guess what? God lets you go on with that. There are three or four ways that this looks like in Scripture. It's not being damned to hell. Everybody get that out of your minds for a second. Jesus saves you. Eternal life is forever. But there can either be a severe loss of fellowship with him. Sometimes some people are saved. They know they're saved. They remember the day they heard the gospel and believed. But they don't understand, why is this, why am I not where I need to be with Jesus? I just know that I'm not. Probably because we're not abiding. In fact, if you think again to what James says, and by the way, the parallels between this section and the book of James are incredible. If you think about what James says, draw near to him and he will what? Draw near to you. Who takes the first step? We do. James calls, he's talking to believers, already have a relationship with him, but draw near to him. And if you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. Our problem is, is we don't want to draw too near to him because of what it might cost us. We're afraid he's going to ask amazing things of us. We're afraid he's going to ask us to live for his glory. I'm so afraid that I'm going to have to give up this antique car that I love to polish with a diaper day in and day out. I might have to sell it and give the $35,000 that I do to missionaries. Dave, you didn't amen that? Probably doesn't have any Baptist in him, I don't know. We're so scared to death that God might do something with our lives. So what are the alternatives? Well, loss of fellowship with him. Usually that leads to a severe loss of assurance. You still have your salvation, but you're not assured of it. You're eternally secure, but you're just schizophrenic about whether or not Jesus has loved you or not. You become legalistic about it, start trying to do things and act a certain way to where you're domineering and accept this idea of, well, I've got to somehow get in God's good graces. I better work like this and do like this and act like this and say these things and read this much. And we all of a sudden create these hoops for ourselves. Another thing is is that he will discipline us. As a loving father, he has no problem paddling his kids. God still believes in corporal punishment. And he will administer it if he needs to. Another thing will be loss of reward at the judgment seat of Christ. The avenues of our lives, the good works that he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them actually became the works that he prepared that we didn't walk in. And because we didn't walk in, we're going to have a sober evaluation of you could have done this with your life for his glory and you didn't. You lived for you. You were your God. 1 Corinthians 3.15 says you will actually experience shame before him because we could have lived greater for his glory and we didn't. Another way that we know of this being burned, being disciplined is physical death. God has no problem taking a persistent and wayward child out of this life. And why is that? Because death is not the worst thing that could happen to us. So he could do that. So let's get rid of this notion that it's a capitulation into hell. Some, some way our sin has dismantled God's grace. Let's not think of that. And let's keep moving forward. Verse 7, here is the key, the secret to an effective prayer life. If you abide in me and my, what is it? Words were commanded in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of God dwell in you richly. If my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. Everybody see that? It will be done for you. 
Why? Because you're abiding. You're in fellowship. You want nothing more than what Jesus wants for you all the time. Ask whatever you want. Boom! Power. A powerful prayer life. I've told you guys this for a while. I keep a prayer journal. I am jazzed about my prayer journal. Because I write down requests, and I'm offering them up to the Lord every day, and I'm starting to mark off where he's answering prayers. And I'm chronicling the dates that these things take place. And it's awesome. Why is that? It's awesome for no other fact that if I stop for a second, I think the God who created everything listens to me. He listens to me. You guys have to listen to me. He wants to listen to me. Now, if that ain't a definition of grace, I don't know what is. You want an effective prayer life? You wonder why your prayers aren't being answered? Let me ask you a question. Are you abiding in him? And does his word abide in you? If it does, guess what? Power in prayer. Effectual prayer of a righteous man avails much. Why is that? Because he's abiding in Christ. Christ's word is abiding in him. That's the reason why. It's because we are people of the word. How about the next one? Look at verse 8. My Father is glorified by this. How can I glorify the Father? Jesus is going to tell us that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Oh, because you weren't really his disciples, you need to prove it. Is that what we're talking about? No. This word genomai means to come into being. It means to come into full assimilation as one. There's a difference between believing in Christ and being a disciple in Christ. Believing in Christ costs you nothing and costs God a whole lot. And he makes it available freely to you. Discipleship, following Jesus, will cost you. It is about you taking up your cross and following him daily. So that's what we're talking about here. God will be glorified in a maximum capacity by each one of us bearing much fruit. Why is that? Because when it's over and done with, we are giving answers to the world, right? Yes, Jesus' way, testifying, it testifies that I love the Father. Because we're saying, guys, all of you got it wrong. Only Jesus' word matters. You think the world wants to hear that right now? Good grief. Somebody might try to veto that. I don't know. Verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, okay, now watch that, just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Now, does that sound good? How much does the Father love the Son? Oodles and gobs, right? That's the technical term. How much does Jesus love you? Oh, you guys want to say it. Oodles and gobs, right? So if the Father loves Jesus, oodles and gobs, and Jesus loves you, oodles and gobs, guess what? Abide in his oodles and gobs. Abide in his love. Stay there. Don't leave. Remain. It's the best place you could be. How do I do that? Verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. How do I abide in the love of Christ? By obeying him. Love is reflective of my obedience to him. Am I obeying Jesus? You can have a relationship with Christ, but not be in a love capacity with Christ. How do I know that? He's talking to his disciples. And get this. If he is giving the imperative of abide, if he's telling them remain in my love, what he's telling you is it's not automatic. 
It is something that you have to come to a realization of. This is the best possible place for me to be for the rest of my life. And so proposition your life in a way to where that is what is flowing through you all the time. I don't want to be anywhere else but in the center of Christ. That's where I want to be. That's where I want to be living, fellowshipping, communing with him, developing friendship with him. That is worth the choice. How about this? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as, there's your just as again, I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Now watch this. Just as Jesus has done it, that refers you back to 1431, He wants us to obey as well and to preach of our love for Him. Now watch why this is important. Look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, number one, that my joy may be in you. Stop. When is the last time that you had genuine joy? I'm not talking about happy. I'm not talking about excited. I'm not talking about giddy. I'm talking about joy. Birth of a child? Maybe. Young dads are like, yeah, at first. Right? Just kidding. Just kidding, buddy. He's hearing everything. He'll repeat that later and get me with it. When's the last time you experienced joy? Because notice what's going on here. Notice what Jesus is telling us. He wants to nourish us thoroughly. But we need to abide in Him. And if we abide in Him, He will abide in us. His Word is abiding in us. And if we love Him, we will keep His commandments because He wants to develop fellowship with us. He wants us to bear much fruit. He wants us to glorify God. He wants us to have an effective prayer life. And He wants to put His joy in us. Why is that? Look what it says. And that your joy may be made full. He wants a joyous church. Is this a joyous church? Or is there, are, are you bitter? You tell me. I don't know. I can't see your heart. Are you bitter? Are you unforgiving? Are you a complainer? Are you a grumbler? Are you hard-hearted? Are you a legalist? They exist? Or do you realize that Jesus Christ is the only thing that makes any of us acceptable whatsoever? That he required nothing of us to be qualified in that way. And so he gives us salvation full and free and doesn't just rescue us from a certain destiny in the lake of fire, but he says, I want you to live. Came to give them life. And life what? Are you sure? Are you sure? Then let me ask you the question. Where is it? Are you abiding in Christ? Husbands, let me give you this little tidbit. You want to know whether or not you're abiding in Christ? Ask your wife. She'll tell you. Because she knows. Because she's not stupid. She knows what it looks like for a man to walk with the Lord and for a man to not walk with the Lord. Now, you may not want to hear it, but if you ask her, she'll tell you. And vice versa. Fellas, we need to be careful. I wrote this down about the nature of a relationship between a vine and a branch. Contact is essential. Nourishment comes from constant connection. This is in your notes if you want to read at the bottom. I just Something as I was reflecting on what do we talk about when we talk about a vine and branch relationship? 
nourishment comes from constant contact. When contact stops, nourishment stops. It is a total dependency. And when the branch is abiding in the vine, get this guys, you don't know where the vine ends and the branch begins. It's seamless. It's seamless. I'm reading a book right now called Enjoying Intimacy with God by a guy named J. Oswald Sanders. He asked this question. I think it's the most profound question any, any Christian could ever entertain in their mind. So I ask you to think about it. Or it's actually it's a statement, forgive me. We are as close to Christ as we really choose to be. We are as close to Christ as we really choose to be. Your walk with Jesus Christ right now is as close as you want it to be. Because Jesus is in this business. He even does this by His grace. He is waiting to accept us fully. We would just come to Him. We're already accepted. You see what I'm saying? He wants more. He wants us to get out of the way so that He can live His life through us. He wants people to look at us and say, you've been with Jesus. He wants us to have to take a mental time out and look at what's going on in our lives and said the only way that anything like this could ever be accomplished is because of what God is doing in my life. And what is that? A day-by-day, constant pursuit and fellowship relationship, inviting Him to be everything He has ever promised to be and provided to be in the Scriptures for you and for me. That's what it is. That's what it is. Is that you? Here's my last question. If abiding in Christ is not the best answer, what is? What is a better answer than Jesus? I'm hard-pressed to find one. But if you have one, I would love to hear what it is. Because no one has given as much, as freely, as abundantly, and calls us to great things that we sit here in and of ourselves and say, there's no way I could ever accomplish that. Of course. That's the point. Because by full dependency in Him, He accomplishes it through you. He does the work through you. He brings it about through you. There probably needs to be a sober assessment that takes place. Am I as close to Jesus as I want to be? Pray. Father, help us to answer this question and to understand that abiding in You is vitally important. You invite us. You call us to this intimacy. You give us everything we need to be there. We are as close to you as we want to be right now. You desire for us to have your joy and that that joy would be made full in us. If we are living a joyless existence, that is not the abundant life. We have gotten off track somewhere. Father, if we're off base, may the Spirit convict our hearts. May we confess to you the things that we have idolized in your place, cast them down, humble ourselves before you. Please do a work as only you can do in our lives this day. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.